0: Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leder.
1: I am Sophie Wicks
2: Kaufman. And I'm Tom Huddleston.
0: On the show this week, Denny Villeneuve adapts Frank Herbert's doorstop sci fi epic Dune. Wes Anderson salutes expatriate journalists in The French Dispatch. And in Film Club, he'll save every one of us. It's Flash Gordon. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back listeners. I'm very excited this week to have two guests who haven't actually been on since this relaunch. Sophie Monks-Kaufman, you're a familiar name and voice for some long-term listeners, but since we've revamped the podcast, this is your first time on. So Sophie, how are you doing and would you mind reintroducing yourself to the lovely listeners?
2: Not
1: at all. And actually, the last time I was on, it was over a year ago and it was We Did an episode of comfort blanket movies, and by sheer coincidence, yesterday I I took a plane, and on the in-flight movie entertainment system was my comfort blanket movie, Music and Lyrics, so I re-watched that yesterday. Um, But yeah, I am contributing editor of Little White Lies, and I'm a freelancer elsewhere at BBC Culture. Um, I've got something big and exciting coming up in Sight and Sound. And I'm generally just sort of like trying to get by however I can in this cold, hard world.
0: <laughs> and you're you're dialing in from abroad right now, right? We want to salute the uh, the fact that you're a glitzy jet set type.
1: Well, I mean, more like I just needed some winter sun, so here I am in Seville, home of the oranges.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Um, And Tom, I don't know if you're dialing in from similarly (laughs) exotic climes.
2: I am dialing in from sunny Stoke Newington, um, (laughs) where the temperature is in the, the hot, hot, um single figures (laughs) well tom
0: it's it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast i've been reading your work for years of course you've been a friend of little white lies all the way through you've also written a piece for the most recent issue of the magazine about june and the legacy of june the franchise but tom who are you would you mind
2: introducing yourself to everyone Uh, Well, I am at the moment primarily an author of kids' books, so my Floodworld trilogy of kind of post-climate change eco-dystopian adventure stories, uh, Floodworld, Dust Road and the new one Stormtide, they're all out now. Uh, But I'm also a freelance film journalist, Um, I was on staff at Time Out for a very long time. And now I write bits and pieces for the likes of Little White Lies and occasionally the BFI website and the odd other publication uh, in between writing books. Absolutely
0: wonderful. We're all introduced. We've got two big new releases this week. Well, very different films, but both new releases from great filmmakers of some renown. We should kick off then with the bigger of the two, the bulkier of the two at least, June. Dune tells the story of Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, He must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity capable of unlocking humanity's greatest potential, only those who can conquer their fear will survive. So, Tom, we brought you in as a ringer, really, a person with (laughs) history with the Dune franchise. Um, Are are you a fan of the book? Because this has been positioned as a good, solid, hard, almost sci-fi film for fans of sci-fi. Is that how it's
2: panned out? Um, I am most definitely a fan of the book. Um, I read it for the first time when I was 10 years old um, in an an effort to impress my father. I don't think I understood most of it, Um, but I then read it again as a teenager and have read it again consistently uh, through the years, including a reread uh, this year in preparation for writing the Little White Lies piece that you mentioned earlier. so yes, the, uh, the the Denis Villeneuve film was has very much been reviewed uh, repeatedly as this is a version of Dune that the fans will love, I guess, to set it apart from the David Lynch version, which um, people assume that the fans won't love. Um, <laughs> I personally go the other way. I uh, grew up with the David Lynch version and I'm very fond of it for all of its many and glaring flaws. Um, whereas the Denis Villeneuve version, while it has a lot of wonderful things, um, I did find to be um, not an imperfect adaptation of a book that I love. I mean obviously I'm bringing a huge amount of baggage to the film um, and I have a huge number of expectations of what I'm going to see um, which will probably, you know, I, I think a second and third viewing will probably improve things for me. But, uh, you know, there's a lot in the book that I missed in the film. Um, he, 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 I think he does a disservice to a lot of the supporting characters mm. uh, with the result that um, certain major plot uh, threads, such as there's a major betrayal about halfway through um, the film which uh, doesn't really work because the character in question isn't fully developed. Um, So yeah, it's visually stunning, it's gorgeous. There are passages in the film which are completely breathtaking on a a scale that we haven't seen for a very, very long time. Um, But as an adaptation of the book, I personally found it uh, a little underwhelming. But as I say, I think repeat viewings will probably improve that it's 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 that double edged sword isn't it of when you say that you're doing an adaptation
0: for fans of a book particularly a book of such size and length and legacy where then you may have fans then going in expecting a by the letter adaptation which of course is impossible
2: and yes Uh, You know, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the guy who goes, oh, but they they didn't include this person and they didn't do that. Um, I'm coming to it. I'm trying to come to it purely from uh, um, from a standpoint of uh, cutting this aspect of the book then had a knock on effect and left the overall story uh, weakened um, but you know again I, c- I can't really go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil things for people who haven't seen it yet so <laughs> so so that again is tricky. Um, I, I should also say that I'm not a huge fan of Denis Villeneuve um, I find his films a little ponderous mm-hmm. and a little self-important and humourless and as a result going into Dune I was, I was a little concerned that it was going to be another Denis Villeneuve film and it was Mm -hmm. you know there are these enormous boom, noises all the way through it and huge shots of vast casts of characters against unforgiving landscapes. And it is entirely humorless, apart from a wonderful scene with Javier Bardem, uh, who pops up about halfway through, to kind of take the piss out of all the other characters uh, in what was probably my favorite scene in the film. But overall, yes, it, it's, it's very po-faced um, and just a little, I mean, for want of a better word, dry... Mm -hmm. but this is fully my prejudice not ever really
0: going and what reading the actual Dune novel is the Dune novel full of humor that's being lost here or is is, I, i always got the impression that was one that was very full of import as a as a text
2: it is but no there is definitely humor and um you know i think one of the lovely things about the David Lynch version which I'm not going to talk about extensively because people everyone, everyone knows what they think about it but one of the great things that he did was to cast um, really unique and interesting character actors uh, in, in the kind of supporting roles so, so you have people like Patrick Stewart and Dean Stockwell and Brad Dourif and Freddie Jones who all bring a certain humour and a certain lightness to their roles, um, which isn't there in the in the Vienna version, but which is there in the book. To be fair, mm-hmm. um, the the character that Josh Brolin plays, Gurney Halleck, is 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 a genuinely likable and amusing character in the book, um, as well as being a, a, a you know a killer. Mm-hmm. He's also he's also a lot of fun, um, and that fun was definitely missing in Josh <laughs> Brolin stomping <laughs> around and glaring at
0: everyone. It, it is still very much a Denis Villeneuve film, but quite a seat-rattling one at that, yes. I think, after this being probably the first major high-budget, you know, large-format blockbuster that I'd, I'd seen at the cinema since they reopened, since we started going back to screenings this year it was, I found that very impressive compared to films that we've talked about on this podcast like Space Jam 2 and Free Guy which (laughs) feel like very much low-hanging fruit and lowest common denominator creativity to have something, a film like this where they really do invest in the production design, set design the spaceship design I would very happily watch the strangely shaped spaceships going into orbit sequences (laughs) for for hours on end Me too Sophie, uh, what's your point of view on Dune? Are you uh, a part of the hardcore or more of a sceptic?
1: So I represent the opposite side of the spectrum to Tom as I'm totally ignorant of everything Dune-related. And this is the sort of film that's had a very long and excitable build-up and I have been watching on the sidelines sceptically, not remotely invested. Um, so yeah, so I I would say that it probably it took me about an hour to realise I enjoyed it. Because I think the first hour, it just—it almost feels like it's just racing to get all this set up in place. Because it's like these guys are from this planet, these guys are from another planet. Uh, like these forces are at play. Here's some Baba. What are they called? The Charlotte Rampling's. What they, the Baba? Bu- the Benny Jesseret. There we go. Not Baba. the anything. Charlotte Ramplings but, but, yeah. is just as good. <laughs> yeah, the Charlotte. Anyway, the Charlotte Ramplings, So. And it, and um, yeah, as Tom says, it's, because it's not, There's no real sort of sense of humor. It just feels like sort of just like okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then at a certain point, once the film opens up and you know who everyone is and you know what everyone wants and you know that Stellan Skarsgård is like like a malevolent, like Oligarchist beast thing, you're like okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. So yeah, so once they were out in the in the desert, uh, zipping around in those space little funny. Uh, insect-like spaceships spaceships um I I really did enjoy it and on the level again of like pure spectacle and you know in a world where I, I think blockbuster filmmaking is very much dominated by the MCU and screen, green screen theatrics just the real world uh-ness of it real world less, but like yeah I, it that was gorgeous to watch but I very much could have done without the like portentous Hans Zimmer score underlining every moment with extra doom
0: yeah as as I just said maybe it is that I've this is returning to big scale cinema for me but in the past yeah Hans Zimmer Denny Villeneuve couldn't be further away from what I would enjoy but this one there was just something about it I think it's the the full commitment to something that could be seen as quite pompous perhaps and humorless as you say uh tom but really ded- dedicating itself to some of the more outlandish concepts and characters um of june like all the way down to is it the the, the sandworm walk is that what it's called yeah, yeah. oh tom. the sandworms
1: <laughs> are absolutely brilliant but the, the fact that you, 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 sensational. in order not
0: to to rumble the sandworms deep underneath, you've got to walk in a way that's completely um, arrhythmic. But it yes. just—it—it it, it just looks very, very silly. Also, <laughs> other <laughs> it, concepts like um, per- these personal shields the characters wear, um, which um, can block fast uh, stabs from a blade, but can't block slow ones, which is a beautiful, um, uh, you know, profound kind of way of looking at fight, you know, combat. In, on, on the page but when you're trying to then cover up all your characters in these little um, force fields it can be a hard I'm sure a hard bit of concept art to sell on screen but they really yeah. do commit to all these things and maybe it is that, um, that that sense that it really also wants to take you on this journey it's not trying to um, undermine everything with an easy joke or gag as the Marvel Cinematic Universe sometimes does and it's not like something like Free Guy or Space Jam having to remind you every five minutes of another franchise or IP that they have in the uh, they have in the catalogue to keep you on side. It's something that felt, even though Tom, you, 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 you said that this is a, a long legacy of adaptation of Dune, it feels original in a way uh, to see something so untethered to other franchises.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say you're absolutely right, Michael, that the lack of quips is actually great. And um, I do think there is humour that comes through just through that absolute earnestness, just because there is so much creativity, like creativity to the point of ridiculousness in certain aspects of certain characterisations and playing it straight is almost the best way to let that come through.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, I I suppose I I don't want it to seem like I, you know, I I would have loved a snappy repartee kill someone and make a funny remark kind of humor in this film i, I think that would have been horrible and um completely uh um inappropriate uh, what i mean by humor is just a natural humor and warmth in the characters mm-hmm. um, which i think is lacking it's there a little in jason Momo's character duncan idaho and as i said it's there a little in in, in javier bardem though he's, he's barely on screen um but overall um it's it's just a very cold film in a lot of ways ironically um but yes you know you need the seriousness and you you do need a certain portentousness because the film is literally about portents mm-hmm. um and i i did love the otherworldliness and the outlandishness of the of of the costuming and uh, and a lot of the set design. There's that wonderful scene when um, the Reverend Mother visits um, the Atreides family on Caladan before they leave for Dune, and everyone's in these completely bonkers, sort of almost Hunger Gamesy, almost Fifth Elementy, ridiculous Batshit Jean Paul Gaultier <laughs> mental costumes and um that i you know stuff like that i loved because it made it feel genuinely otherworldly i mean i'm comparing it to things like the fifth element and and, and the hunger games but it, it had its its own uh its own tone and its own strangeness and and all of that stuff was was wonderful and, and that's completely via nerve you know none of that mm. is on the page so he did bring a lot of wonderful imagination to it this this
0: makes me want to ask about the cast a little bit because this has got one of those casts where the entire top strap of the, the quad poster is you know, Oscar nominee, Oscar winner, somebody you, you, you're, you're deeply in love with from other films, quite a stacked cast. But for me, it felt almost like some of those um, actors were acting in completely different films to, to one another. You'd have someone like Stalin Skarsgård, who it took me maybe three scenes to recognise that was Stellen Skarsgård because it looked like Gary Oldman playing Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Um, who he's very much giving this monstrous, grotesque performance. Then you have some quite grounded performances from the likes of Oscar Isaac. You have Timothy Chalamet, which I'm sure we'll talk about him in French Dispatch as well, but he's a, a, an actor who doesn't have much presence for me. But then Jason Momoa and Javier Bardem having a little bit more fun, maybe, than others. Um, Sophie, uh, any highlights or MVPs from the cast, or anyone who maybe you'd want to give a ding to?
1: I'd like to give a ding to Rebecca Ferguson, mm-hmm. um, so she plays the mother of Paul Atreides and it's a sort of, she's like, um, she doesn't have that many lines but somehow everything she says that, 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 there's something to it, there's an extra resonance to it and I think she has, she does have a great screen presence. Um, and for a large portion of the film it's kind of like it's her and uh the lad chalamet together and i don't know she just she's got something she's she's got it i tell you and in a totally different sense jason momoa is brilliant as duncan idaho um he's just a man mountain you'd want him on your side he he wants the best for you he'll do anything for you you don't need to worry about him he'll go out and he'll do what he can and i i just love that
0: Tom, any anyone you'd shout out to
2: definitely rebecca ferguson i completely agree with sophie on that one she's she's wonderful she's so restrained and kind of graceful and uh yet yeah, threatening she's 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 terrific i actually quite I thought Timothy Chalamet was actually pretty decent casting uh, mm. here. Um, you know, Paul is supposed to be out of his depth. He's supposed to be young. Um, there's a fragility to him that I think works for the character. The big test for him will be in film two when he needs to, kind of, for want of a better word, man up and you know go out there and 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 start start cutting a swath through the uh, through the through the Harkonnen, the villainous forces. Speaking of which, um, Stellan Skarsgård's performance—I, it was one of the, the the big things for me that that was problematic about this film. Or, or not his performance, but just the way that whole, the, the way the villains, the Harkonnens, w- were set up. Um, you know, the, Baron Harkonnen is one of the great villains in literature. Uh, he is truly vile the entire not species but the entire family the entire um, planet they're all just utterly utterly despicable and one of the great things in the in, in the lynch version is how truly repulsive he makes the harconans i mean it's it's hard to watch i saw that film much too young and they haunted my nightmares for years afterwards whereas in the vienna version you know he's basically bald and that's about it. <laughs> um he's bald and he sort of slurs a bit. I I don't know. um yeah, I I wanted more villainy. Mm-hmm, I wanted mm-hmm. more convincing villainy, which we may get in in part 2 because uh the character of 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 Fade Rother who is kind of Paul's opposite played famously by Sting in the uh David Lynch version isn't even included in this uh, in this film at all. So so maybe we'll get more grotesque villainy in, in, in part two, which I look forward to immensely.
0: Yes, yeah. Thank you for bringing up the fact that there is a part two coming because all the marketing of this film, the posters says this is called June, and then when we sit down and we go through our twenty minutes of adverts and, tra- and trailers and what, looking at our watch, trying to figure out when to get you know to last train home that that title card comes up June part one. (laughs) So I I sincerely hope that people aren't wrong-footed by some of this marketing. I think it is quite an open... It's not—it's not a secret at all. It's quite a, its quite well known that this is just the first part of the story. But you do wonder. There's a certain part in the in the second half where it's all flashes forward or predictions or prophecies, and you're wondering—we're not going to get to that for another three or four years, surely. <laughs> <shortly. laughs>
2: We're
0: not going to get to that just yet. But let's move on to scores for June. Tom, I'll come to you first. This is
2: in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect so my anticipation was high because i love the book and because the um trailers were pretty gripping um marred slightly by my my doubts about via so i'd say four and then enjoyment of the film a strong three and then in retrospect a, a, a basic three um as I said, I think my enjoyment of it will increase on, on, on repeat viewings when I can set aside my expectations a little. And I do appreciate that that's my failing, not the failing. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a
1: crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sophie, what's your scores for this? And will you be back for part two?
1: I will. I Again, I, I want to see how Pooh transforms. And I do think you get, even within the arc of part one, you get an element of him becoming more sure of himself. Um and I want to see how that transformation continues. I wanna see more Javier Bardet, more Zendaya, because she's hardly in it as mm. well. Um so yeah, I'm 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 in. So anticipation, uh, lukewarm three. Enjoyment, I wish we could do point five because I think it's actually a three point five, but I'll be generous and round up and say four just because there's so much so much to it and maybe not all of it is utilized as much as it could be like I I know I I got a June head to explain the book to me, so I now know about the sort of more meticulous plotting that would have given more resonance to certain events that is out, and also I heard about how truly vile Baron Harkonnen is. Um, so yes, yeah, so I I think let's go four nonetheless, and then in retrospect three, um, but like a like a a, a decent three.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, I, I run hot and cold on Denny Villeneuve, so probably a three in anticipation for me. But I was very much blown away by this. There's that famous hi-fi advert from the late 80s, early 90s, where it's the guy in the armchair just being blown away by the force of what's coming out of his hi-fi system. And that was very much me watching that film. And I yeah, was very impressed. I don't think I understood half of it in terms of the lore that was on screen. But uh, maybe on a, a second viewing, uh, I'll be more invested. So probably I'd say three, four, four for me. Um, but listeners, that's June for you. Let us know what you make of it at the usual channels at lblies on Twitter or truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, another big release, The French Dispatch. So before we move on to the French Dispatch, we just wanted to tell you about some nationwide screenings and events coming up that we think are very exciting. The BFI are presenting a major UK-wide celebration of the career of multi-award winning writer-director Mike Lee, one of Britain's most internationally recognised and critically acclaimed filmmakers working today. Highlights of the celebration include a complete film season at BFI Southbank running from 18th of October to 30th of November, including Q&As with Mike Lee himself and special guests including Alison Steadman, David Thewlis, Leslie Sharp, Phil Daniels, Ruth Sheen, Imelda Staunton, Jim Broadbent and many others, plus a selection of work chosen from other filmmakers as picked by Mike. Also, Naked is released in UK cinemas on 12th of November and both Naked and Mike Lee's debut, Bleak Moments, are available on Blu-ray for the first time from 22nd of November. Also, there'll be a curated Mike Lee collection available to UK-wide audiences on BFI Player. And it gives me great pleasure to say that home Manchester, although I'm a Salfordian, as is Mike Lee, will also run a Mike Lee season from 7th of November to the 30th of November. Go to bfi.org.uk slash Mike-Lee for full details. The French Dispatch brings to life a collection of stories from the final issue of an American magazine published in a fictional 20th century French city. A portmanteau film, within its pages lie three central tales, as well as an obituary and a travel guide. So Sophie, this is the new film from Wes Anderson. You literally wrote the book on Wes Anderson, or a book at least. Um, Were you excited for this and what did you make of it?
1: I... I was excited for it, but like I temper my expectations, um, and I just couldn't have been happier. I I've seen the film twice now, and I think I could watch it again and again and again and again because, and in a totally different way to June, the level of world building is just astonishing. Like for every tiny gag, for every character that's on sc- only on screen once, there's been so so much. TLC applied to like making them just so, um, and this more than any other Wes Anderson film. And obviously, you already has this reputation as someone who has this particular style and particular way of doing things. But this more than any other Wes Anderson film today is just dizzying, um, and it's just a pleasure to be in that world. I found, and you know. I think that like this isn't gonna convert anyone who doesn't like him because it's it's you know it's like where's times where's times where's <laughs> you know it's, he's not doing anything that is is like appealing to the other side, um, but it's just beautiful how much he cares and how much he invests in creating uh, his own visions and um, yeah so I I adored it I absolutely adored it and I was moved by it because. Like a lot of his films, it's very nostalgic for a world that doesn't really exist anymore, um, for characters that don't really exist anymore. And, and especially the, the final section with uh, Roebuck Wright, which is he this character is sort of a, a James Baldwin-esque character, uh, like a, a gay back black journalist. There's so much mournfulness, so much melancholy, so much like, like just a, a worldliness in the in the most bittersweet of ways and yet it's also punctuated by like hilarious little gags like so his section roebuck riot which is the final section it it's like he's telling this incredible story and it's in the form of a tv interview with leave schreiber and then he goes and now a message from our sponsor uh tied toothpaste or whatever and it's just like he is so attentive to the not just the characters and the stories, but, you know, worlds within worlds, the furniture. So it's not just his story, the story of the journalist that he's attending to, he's he's tending to, you know, the infrastructure around it in the form of that TV show and like all the little quirks of that world. And he's just such a, you know, he's such a student of so many different art forms that he then melds in to the overall whole. Like there's a comic strip that's in there. There's so many like just pieces within pieces and each is rendered so lovingly, and also with so much humour. So uh, I don't know if you're getting a sense that I really loved it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, as you say, it's where's times where's times where's although he is still trying some new things in here. This a sequence that is 2D animation, almost in the style of the Tintin cartoons, which was quite delightful, considering he's done stop-motion animation in the past, but to see him actually do a cartoon, I'd love to see him... Maybe do that in a, a, over a longer form at some point. But Sophie, th- this film, because of the huge cast and the wealth of characters, of course, there are these three main stories, but lots of bits in between. Also, there's been quite a lot of talk about the fact that it's inspired by some of the great periodicals of the 20th century, like The New Yorker in, in, in the mid century and the writers and the editors that worked there. How much do you think that then relies on a bit of homework for the audience beforehand or can it just be enjoyed completely not knowing that this has any relation to reality?
1: I think it can be enjoyed without knowing it has any relation to reality. If anything, you might wonder after watching it about this very specific format. Like each of the three stories is introduced with an intertitle that says what section of the magazine it falls under and the page numbers it occupies. And afterwards, you might be like, huh, what was that about? And especially at the end when it says this is inspired by, and it lists lots of sort of great journalists, including James Baldwin and also editors. So you might, you know, going in totally blind, you might look at all that stuff and think, let's have a dig around here. So I think it could could work in that direction in as much as doing the homework first. Or even if you weren't inspired to do that and you just want to take it as it is. uh, I don't think he makes films that are sort of out of, that average moviegoers reach. I just think there's stuff nested in there for if you if you want to find it.
0: So Tom, we have you on to talk about Dune, <laughs> and then we throw you the French Dispatch. Is this your sort of jam? What do you make
2: of this film? Uh, I, I think it's I think it's genuinely hilarious that we're discussing Dune and the French Dispatch on the same podcast, and you know, inspiring and wonderful because it shows the breadth of uh, cinema that is available to people in their local multiplex. But there there are literally i i struggle to think of two more different films um, apart from the fact that they're both in the english language and they both have timothy chalamet in them dune is this grandiose pompous ponderous intergalactic glacial epic and the french dispatch is this spry fast cheeky silly lovely heartwarming humorous witty just wonderful um, piece of, of, of filmmaking. I, I've always loved Wes Anderson from the time I saw um, Rushmore in the cinema, um, probably early 20s, I would think, or mid-20s. Um, and that will always remain the Wes that I loved the best, but this was certainly coming close. I, you know, off the back of the trailers, there was a little part of me that was thinking... Um, is this finally is this going to be the one that pushes me over the edge is this going to be the wes film that um that's just too precious and just too intricate and just too um i don't know just too wesy <laughs> um and 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 push me over the edge into being mildly annoyed which the life aquatic had come close to doing that though there are still wonderful things in that film uh, and the french dispatch just bowled me over i absolutely adored it um I, I agree with everything that Sophie said. The intricacy, um, just the sheer level of detail is absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, it it's it's the constant shifting of styles and tones is is something that he hasn't really done before. There, there are hints of it in 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 all of his films, or certainly in in the last few, particularly Grand Budapest, where it, you know, it switches to um to stop motion animation for that for that wonderful skiing sequence Mm -hmm. um but he's pushing it so much further in this film and you know that there's a sequence which i won't spoil where it cuts to essentially a stage play being being mounted um roughly halfway through the film and it's it's it suddenly goes from really over the top intricate cinema to completely basic dogville style a bunch of people sitting in a room with ones with 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 a few props and the because it's one of the most emotional moments in the film story-wise it really hits home and it really um it just has an impact that it wouldn't have had if he'd continued to, to if he told that part of the story in the same way that he tells the rest of the story in that busy style he just has to cut to something completely basic and completely straightforward and declarative and say this is what happened um and there is a a slight irony to it but it's beautiful and it's it's really moving yeah as you said can you tell how much I loved it (laughs) Um, I, I really I really did um I was just lost in that world for however long it was and uh yeah, I, I found it just remarkable.
1: And also, just to add, that moment that Tom refers to, the stage play, temporally, it's hilarious because it's like a flash-forward to a play that was made of something that's happened in the past.
2: The the uh, Yes, the, the playing around with time is also, I think, unique for his films. And, you know close to unique for for cinema in general that i can't i can remember very few films with this level of kind of overwhelm Mm -hmm. in terms of style time hopping narrative tricks um the the only one that that kind of came to mind was natural born killers um which (laughs) is a film that i loathe utterly um for almost exactly the same reasons that i love um Uh, The French Dispatch, it's a weird film to compare it to, but it's the only thing that I could think of in terms of that just restlessness and and just use of different styles and looks and tones.
1: And he loves a newspaper headline thrown in the mix to frame. That's the thing about... To draw a line between your favourite Tom Rushmore and this, he just loves frames within frames. In Rushmore, it's velvet curtains opening on each month. In the French Dispatch, it's so many different, from the intertitles that announce each section to the like little it, nested alternate forms that that like that stop motion animation and the theatre play and you know he just he just loves to sort of slice and dice and and like zoom in on and extract and you know but it it all works it all flows none of it is gratuitous it's all designed to bring out some element of the story or the world
0: and sophie do you think that he can still go down this path it feels like these these films have if you can quite crudely cut his career in two halves maybe from bottle rocket to darjeeling limited and then what's come later where it is this quite dizzying immaculately constricted films with different time periods with these different mediums of filmmaking in there now also these smaller stories within stories um can he go any further now it feels like this one almost feels like the ultimate expression of that
1: well you say that but people said that about the Grand Budapest <laughs> Hotel and then he made this <laughs> so I for one I'm like fascinated to see how he can up the up the anti even more. Um I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt him just because um yeah, he's 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 much into the beat of his own drum and it's a it's a beautiful, immaculate, dizzying and very cheeky little drum
0: actually. <laughs> you know Tom, it's it is funny, as you say, it is hilarious because these films are so, such polar opposites, maybe tonally, but um but they are both overwhelming in terms of their the craft behind them and seeing them in a cinema, they they are great big screen films. One for the large format for June, but then for Wes it's for the French Dispatch it's the place where you can drink in all those details. I don't wanna come across like a downer. This feels like Maybe this is the point where I'm going to be tapping out a little bit from Wes Anderson. I don't know why. Maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I'm happy to put my hands and go and rewatch it again. But after speaking very recently about Todd Haynes' documentary The Velvet Underground and saying how that was... A, he's a filmmaker who does his research, loves his time periods, and translated that into a documentary format that is a prism through which we can enjoy all of his um, obsessions and interests and research. I'd love Wes Anderson to maybe try something similar I came away from this thinking oh I kind of wish I'd seen a documentary or read a really good book about expatriate journalists in mid-20th century Europe rather than enjoying this film for what it was maybe but again I'll go and re-watch it again and see how I feel but we should put some scores on this and final comments Sophie I'll come to you first
1: so for final comments just to quickly uh mention the cast Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's all Wes's regulars um, with a few bonus ones. So we've got um, Tilda Swinton, uh, Francis McDormand, Timothee Chalamet for the first time. Then you've got Saoirse Ronan in a blink and you'll miss it role. And it's just, yeah, it's like a lot of his regulars. And this film more, more so than any previous one, it, the, it, it's less that they're performing a character and more it's a kind of like emotional impressionism that, that they're very comfortable with and that I find very enjoyable. Um, and I think you really get a sense that everyone know, every like everyone's a message, everyone knows what film they're in. They know how to pitch things. Like there's a very, <laughs> Henry Winkler and Bob Balaban, uh, They they play a couple of brothers who barely have a word to say, but they're hilarious. Just something about the way they're styled, their reactions, they, you know, they 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 know what film they're in and they play it really well and I think I think that is a pleasure about watching a Wes Anderson film is that that sense that he he he's someone who knows how to captain a crew and uh, create a cohesive vision where everyone's in the same film um, and as for my scores four just because you know I don't want to put too much pressure on him um, but then five five
0: mm. it is a, it is a treat seeing all of these great supporting character actors pop up for just one line. Fisher Stevens has maybe two lines across the entire film, but he's always a treat to see in front of the camera. Tom, well, what scores would you give French Dispatch?
2: Um, well, firstly, I'd like to pick you up on the fact that Fisher Stevens is not always a treat to see in front of the camera, as anyone who has seen maybe not circuits Circuit. 1 and yeah. 2 um, would, would attest. But yes, my scores, um, as I say, I went into it a little dubious. I... I um, I I genuinely, off the back of the trailer, was a little worried that this was going to be just two Wes. You know, it it was going to be, you know, the most Wes that it could possibly be. And it was, and it was great. So um, three for anticipation. Um, I was going to go, I'll definitely go five for enjoyment because I loved it. I was going to go four for 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 looking back for retrospect because I wasn't sure how much I wanted to see it again but having listened to Sophie um <laughs> being so in love with it um I've realized that I really do want to see it again already so I'm going to go 355.
1: Oh my god that's the power of film criticism.
0: Amazing. It's the power of this podcast as well, Sophie, and particularly whenever you're on and you love a film, you always convince me that I maybe liked the film more than I thought I did. And it's always a treat speaking through these films with you and you, you as well, Tom. So even though I probably say my scores for this would be maybe 4-3-3, I think I'll go back and rewatch this because maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. Um, or maybe, you know, uh, I, I should go away and do some research, do some reading, and then I'll find a new detail that I didn't didn't pick up on the first time round. But Tom, Sophie, thank you very much for your analysis of both June and the French dispatch this week. Listeners, let us know what you make of those films at the usual channels. Up next we have Film Club, and this week with the release of June, we're going for a similarly spectacular sci-fi epic although one that's slightly tonally different. Our pick was inspired by Little White Lies' partnership with Terra Virtua, the world's first fully immersive social and digital collectibles platform that allows collectors to display and interact with their virtual goods in augmented reality, virtual reality, and in 3D on PCs. Terra Virtua's mission is to turbocharge fandom, and to find out more, you can head to terravirtua.io. And speaking of turbocharging, has there ever been a sci fi space opera as turbocharged as the wonderfully OTT Queen Scored Delight that is 1980s Flash Gordon? <music> In this cult classic, complemented by a soundtrack from Queen, an American football player and his friends travel to the planet Mongo and find themselves fighting the tyrant Ming the Merciless in a battle for Earth's future. So, Tom, we were talking about sci-fi films that take themselves seriously and take the literature seriously and try to come off uh, as uh, not as uh, ridiculous on screen, this is this is how would we even start with Flash Gordon?
2: <laughs> the the thing that I wonder, and I think I actually maybe this comes up in my brain roughly once a year, whether or not I'm <laughs> engaging with the film or not. It's just I just suddenly think, who the hell made it? Who paid for it? What did they think they were getting? Who did they think it was for? I mean, you know, it's post Star Wars, came mm-hmm. out the same year as The Empire Strikes Back, so there's obviously an element of it which is aiming for that um for that market but it's just bonkers um you know did they think that kids who enjoyed star wars which you know for all its you know cowboy silliness is essentially a serious film would thrill to the adventures of a sort of 60s muscle mag um jock football player in a world of purple campy weirdness i mean it it genuinely beggars belief that anyone thought this was going to make money and yeah as far as i know it did um i think it was reasonably successful you know it was successful enough to spawn a Porn spin-off. So uh, <laughs> what, arguably the most famous porn spin-off in, in porn spin-off history. Um, so, you know, it must have it must have done something, but you know, it's it's it feels like such a such a, a throwback. Um, you know, it's 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 like it's 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 Barbarella, but even camper mm-hmm. and more kind of macho in a in a in a very camp sense. Um It's just a berserk film, and I I don't know why it exists, but I'm kind of glad that it does. It's a a really interesting one, and and maybe it's a way
0: of unlocking certain eras of film history. So You mentioned Barbarella, so this is from the same producer, Dino De Laurentiis, as as that film. He also made Diabolic, another sort of pulpy comic book movie, but they were both from the 1960s and chimed with a sort of pop-art camp sensibility of the time. Once you get to 1980, and it's post-Star Wars, maybe this... Sort of reveals to us what studio execs, particularly eccentric ones like De Laurentiis, thought Star Wars was. Because when the only the first Star Wars film had come out, it did come across like it was disco space opera pulp. Before the lore and the legacy and the weight of everything comes in later in the saga, and now we we see Star Wars as this untouchable behemoth. But back then, maybe it was just something that you'd get someone with floppy blonde hair. Um, to, to, to lead a film with colourful characters and creatures but then the tone Lorenzo Semple Jr who in the 1970s wrote some great conspiracy thrillers like Three Days of the Condor and the Parallax View also developed the Batman TV series in the 60s he also wrote never say never again which we talked about on this podcast a couple of uh, weeks ago so he's this writer who could do serious could do campy and was forced to do campy and later on says he regrets that script the the direction it went in there's no real story there's no real character and it just sort of undermines the whole thing it's an adaptation from the pulp comic strip and the, the the adventure serials from earlier in the 20th century but they apply to it this camp sensibility that i think means that it's a no, i wouldn't say it's aged well but it's lasted well maybe that's the the queen factor where off the back of this you get the flash hit single which has many lines from the film dispersed within it um and maybe i I'd, I'd hazard this is one of those rare cases where i'd probably say the queen soundtrack album is 35 minutes long and the film is just under 2 hours and since the queen album um has quite low dialogue in it. You can probably get a good hit of the film by just listening to that, rather than sitting down and watching the film. Um, but it's it is a fascinating one, and as you say, it's ca- it's campy. But I don't really think there's much fun to be had in the majority of the performances, apart from one great exception, which is Brian Blessed, who is a treat to behold every time he's on you know, every time he's on screen. He's just open mouthed, you how would you describe that laugh that bellowing
2: laugh he has in every scene? i i would say that you know along with the queen soundtrack brian blessed's performance is another reason why the film has um lasted as i mean it, it is a, a truly iconic performance you know he 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 still wheels it out you know he did he did the whole gordon's alive thing on have i got news for you <laughs> i mean it's a little while ago now because it's before the current administration but uh it's not that long ago certainly, and. Um yes, his 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 performance is the most remarkable thing about the film, though I, I would also put a little word in for Timothy Dalton, who mm-hmm. um is just I don't know, he's just immensely silly. There's a bit where he runs into a room, shouts you bloody bastards, and shoots everyone <laughs> for no apparent reason. Um it's 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 all very odd. And the fact that lines like that are in the film that you know that people get called bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a film which is kind of you know there's none of that in Star Wars and, <laughs> uh, most most certainly yeah I, you know I, I I just wonder I feel like there was someone behind the scenes who knew what they were doing and were having a really really good time but no one else really um, really got it I, I, a, a film that I that I'm put in mind of is 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 and this is another slightly tangential point but uh, A Nightmare renowned Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge mm-hmm. um, which is an immensely campy and um, wonderfully silly film with, with, with deep um, homoerotic overtones and the writer of the film uh, was gay and he put all of that stuff in intentionally but the director and all of the cast didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, And I wonder if something similar is going on in Flash Gordon or if there is someone, maybe it's Lorenzo Semple Jr., uh, who knew exactly what they were making, but everyone else was just kind of doing what they were told or what the script said. I don't know. I, I just can't imagine that more than one person sat down around a table and said, let's make this. And then mm-hmm. they went out and
0: made it. It's 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 part of that curious phase of filmmaking history where you had such a strong studio system in the UK, where most of Hollywood was being shot, um, you know, just outside of London. Most of their big big films. So in the off season, those studios could be used for weird European projects like this. And then you went you'd end up with you know there are some crazy um, British actors in this, and weird like blink and you'll miss it appearances too. So Robbie Coltrane. I think is 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 in the very first scene. He's like he's loading up the plane when Flash is 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 getting on that small the, the small single engine engine plane at the beginning. So some some weird things like that. But as you say, I don't think anyone sat down and wrote this out of you know in, in one sitting. And it just means that it's a very fun one to dig into the trivia, dig into the story behind it. The one on this rewatch that I um missed I because I guess watching it on telly all over the years you wouldn't necessarily pick it up. So Sam Jones, who plays Flash Gordon, had already left the production before they did all the ADR and audio pickups afterwards. So he's been almost entirely dubbed by a different actor. And for decades they didn't know who that was. And they finally found out in the last like in the last five, six years who that was and tracked him down. And so Sam Jones even though this is his definitive performance didn't go on to make many films after this it's not his voice all the way through it um and likewise they didn't have an ending for the script so the, the ending that um where he just jumps up and screams yeah punching the air and there's a great sort of freeze frame and then the queen song comes back in that was improvised on the day And a lot of it apparently was just improvised around a very threadbare script, which is quite fascinating that films were made on this scale that were so haphazard and ramshackle back in the day.
2: Before we finish, I'd just like to put a quick word in. When I was a kid and we used to watch this film, because we did, you know, it was a film that people had on VHS and would, uh, you know, we'd go around to somebody's house for a birthday party and someone would stick it on and you'd eat pink cake. Um, the person who uh, we always loved to spot was Peter Duncan of uh, Blue Peter, who sticks his hand into a tree and dies horribly. So I just wanted to uh, make a little, men- I think any discussion <clears throat> of Flash Gordon that doesn't uh, include the words Peter Duncan would be uh, lacking. So I just wanted to throw that in there. And what
0: a, what's a perfect way to wrap up the chat. Around Flash Gordon. Listeners, I'm sure you have all sorts of opinions on Flash Gordon from watches and rewatches over the years. Please let us know what you make of it at the usual channels, at LW Lies on Twitter, truth and movies at tcolondon.com via email. Tom, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure talking through these films with you. Next week, we have Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. We have the festival favourite Azor. And since Edgar is so inspired by Giallo films in making Last Night in Soho, we're going back to revisiting one of the original ones, Blood and Black Lace. Listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod. And if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you if you left one for us. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for TCO London. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leder, and my guests this week were Sophie Monks-Kaufman and Tom Huddleston. The podcast is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel, and edited by Steph Watts and James Payne.